Take your Bibles, please, and turn to the Old Testament book of Job. That's where we are today, the book of Job. Job chapter 1 is where we'll start. This is the next installment in a series of messages where we are going through the Bible book by book, summarizing the books, giving a synopsis of the, the book as a whole so that we can understand how the books of the Bible fit together and what they teach. Today, as we come to the book of Job, we're entering the third section of Old Testament literature, this section called wisdom literature or the poetic books. So let me review while you find Job chapter 1. The first five books of the Bible are called the Pentateuch, and they ground our understanding of all, of, of all that is and how everything began, how God worked in a, in a single family and how he turned that family into a nation and a nation through which the Messiah would come for the world. That was the Pentateuch. And then we moved on to the historical books, that second section of literature from Joshua through Esther. And in the historical books, we see the history of the people of God, how they enter and conquer the promised land, how they set up a system of government and kings, and how the nation eventually split into two because of their rebellion against God and idolatry and how both of those sections of the nation, Israel in the north and Judah in the south, both rebelled against God. Both were eventually carried off into captivity by enemies, two different nation of enemies, but still carried off into captivity. And then at the end of the historical books, Ezra and Nehemiah, we saw how some of the Jews, those who populated the southern portion of the land, were able to return and reestablish Jerusalem and repopulate the city, rebuild the temple, and establish the walls once again. Now, chronologically, historically, that's where the Old Testament ends. Historically, it doesn't go any further than that. But now we're moving back in history and recognizing that all along these hundreds of years of history of the Jews, literature has been, writ been written, the literature in the form of poetry. And the voices of the prophets have been heard, the prophets calling people back to a walk with God. And so that's what's left in our treatment of the Old Testament, the, the, the poetic literature of the, of the Old Testament, as well as the voice of the prophets. And as we come to Job, we start our treatment through the poetic books. And here is the key concept of the book of Job. It is beyond any theological system. You cannot construct a box of doctrine and fit God in it. Truth, by the way. God is too big for that. God is too sovereign for that, too mysterious for that. Wisdom literature, with the question, what is wisdom literature anyway? Wisdom literature is, uh, the, covers the book of Job, Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, and Song of Solomon. And in wisdom literature, God is answering the big picture questions of life. And today in the book of Job, it's wisdom for those who suffer by an anonymous author. We don't know who wrote it, and we don't know when it was written. It's set in the period of time of the patriarchs, in the, in the time of Genesis. 
But it wasn't necessarily written then. It could have been, but many scholars believe it was probably written later, during the time of Jewish history when poetic expression flourished, most likely during Solomon's time. But whatever, it's set in the time of the patriarchs, and um, every aspect of the book of Job is revealed to the reader except this one question. What will Job do? And the structure of the book is interesting. In the first two chapters of the book of Job, we have prose. It's a prologue. Ten verses of the book of Job, it returns to prose in the epilogue. But all throughout the book of Job, the rest of the big, huge section of the book is all poetry. Job is an epic poem written as wisdom literature. Your Bibles may actually reveal that to you. In my Bibles, the first chapter and the second chapter of the book of Job, the margins are very straight. But when I get to the third chapter of, book, of the book and following, there's indentations making the verses into couplets. That's your editor giving you a hint that this is poetry throughout the body of the book. However, just because the book is expressed to us in poetry doesn't mean that Job wasn't a real historical character. It's very probable that Job was a historical person, but now his story is revealed to us in this epic poem through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. But the book of Job has a point that says that anytime you're suffering, it's because of your own personal sin or personal lack of faith. That worldview says that if bad things happen to you, it's because you deserve it. Just admit it and move on. That is the perspective of Job's quote-unquote comforters all throughout the book. And so they spend most of the book badgering Job to admit what he did wrong. It also teaches us that neither is it true to say that suffering exists because God is a big fat meanie and he's out to get us. That's not true either. That's the perspective of Job's wife. But that's not true. Also, Job shows us that there is not always a connection between spirituality and prosperity. Because you're rich doesn't mean that God is honoring your life. That's Satan's perspective in this book. Rather, we learn that God is sovereign in how he bestows blessings and hardships. We learn that our place before him is to submit and to cling to the confidence that what God wants for us in the way that he sovereign, sovereignly runs the universe is ultimately for our best. It is to admit that we can't construct a theological system into which God must fit. He's too big for that. He's too mysterious for that. I come away from the book of Job with this thought. God is scary. As we read the, the opening sequence of the book, we see that Satan comes before God, and he does what his name says he is. He accuses. Satan means accuser. And Satan accuses both Job and God. Read with me chapter 1, verse 9, of paying off Job for his faith. Verse 9 says, Does Job fear God for nothing? Satan replied. Have you not put a hedge around him and his household and everything else he has? You have blessed the work of his hands so that his flocks and herds are spread throughout the land. But stretch out your hand and strike everything that he has, and he will surely curse you to your face. 
Satan challenges the blessing that Job enjoys. He says, the only reason that Job has faith in you, God, is because you're paying him off in the form of wealth. Take the wealth away. Take the blessing away and see what happens. And God allows Satan to put that cynical perspective to the test. His servants are murdered. His herds are slaughtered. His children all die in a freak accident. In one day, he loses his family, his wealth, and he loses his hope for the future. In chapter 1, verse 21, Job speaks, Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked I will depart. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. May the name of the Lord be praised. And Satan hears that, and he is taken aback. How can this be? After taking all of this away from Job, he still praises God. So Satan returns to God, and he says, God, we need to change the rules. We didn't go far enough. Yeah, I'm sure he's, he's okay when he's lost some stuff, but touch his body with illness, and we'll see how he responds. And so Satan asks for permission to up the ante. Look at verse 4 of chapter 2. Skin for skin, Satan replied. A man will give all he has for his own life, but stretch out your hand and strike his flesh and bones, and he will surely curse you to your face. And Job loses his health as the stakes are risen even higher. And into this scene, at the end of chapter 2, comes comforters. Four comforters plus his wife. Three speak almost immediately. The fourth one doesn't speak to the end of the book. And what the book contains, here's the body of the book of Job. It's three cycles of each of the comforters speaking to Job, accusing Job of having some deep, dark secret that must be the cause for this, and Job responding. Now, the first of these, quote-unquote, comforters, comforters is Job's wife. Now, she breaks the pattern. She only speaks once. And probably she only speaks once is because her perspective is the most negative, the most pessimistic perspective of anybody in the book. She says, of course you're suffering because God is unfair. You're suffering because God is a big meanie. He's out to get us. Capriciously, he brings suffering. And Her advice to Job in chapter 2, verse 9, curse God and die. Not particularly helpful. Thank you very much. I'm going to set up a column so that you see what each of these comforters say, the way that the advice that they give and the response that Job gives. And what Job says in response to his wife is wonderful theology. He says in verse 10, you're talking like a foolish woman. Shall we accept good from God and not trouble? In all of this, Job did not sin. It's important that the follower of God recognizes that both the good and the bad comes, and we need to trust God to know what's best. At ground level, we might not figure it all out. We don't always see the end from the beginning or the connections, but God does, and trust and faith is called for. Job responds that way, and into the scene come four friends. And for a while, I am impressed with them. They genuinely care for Job. Let's pick up the reading in, in uh, verse 12 of chapter 2. 
When they saw him from a distance, they could hardly recognize him. They began to weep aloud. They tore their robes. They sprinkled dust on their heads. Then they sat on the ground with him for seven days and seven nights. No one said a word because they saw how great his suffering was. Their names are Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar. And as they come, they just enter into his grief. I'm impressed by that. For a week, they sit silently and just demonstrate, we're with you. It's terrible. And they experience his pain. So often those around us, we don't have words to say. We don't know what, what to say that will help. Nothing will. But we're just there. But it is after those seven days with their silent nearness that comforts him. It is when they start to speak and they demonstrate that their, their view of reality is too simplistic. It's too false. And they all have the exact same view. The doctrine is called the doctrine of retribution. And the doctrine of retribution says, when you suffer, it is always out of retribution for some sin you have committed. You always get what you deserve. So your point is to simply admit it. Now the fact is that there's some truth to that. When we are out of the will of God, when we rebel against the will of God, there are often consequences that we can tie to that situation of sin in our lives. However, the mistake that they're making is thinking that they can universally apply this in an unbending way to everybody around them. It is that unyielding, unbending point of view that is too simple. It boxes God in. It doesn't allow for the majesty of who he is. Well, Eliphaz is the first comforter to speak. And his point of view can be summed up in chapter 4, verse 8. This is what he says. He says, As I have observed, those who plow evil and those who sow trouble reap it. In other words, you reap what you sow. And we know that's a biblical principle. And often that is true. But Eliphaz is saying it is always true. Without exception, Job, you must have done something. So Eliphaz's advice, his advice to Job is to use this time to learn your lesson. If this is help, no thank you. This is not helping. In chapter, six, uh, chapter 7, verse 16, he says, I despise my life. I would not live forever. Let me alone. My days have no meaning. And he comes out swinging in chapter 8, verse 2. This is what Bildad says. How long will you say such things? Your words are blustering wind. Does God pervert justice? Does, he, does the Almighty pervert what is right? Bildad says, Job, you must be lying. You're full of hot air. God would never allow something that's unjust to exist. If you suffer, it's because you deserve to suffer. It's as simple as that. And Bildad's advice to Job is, throw yourself on the mercy of God. Explain how bad Job is and how he must do that. And then in chapter 10, verse 1, Job responds. He says again, I loathe my very life. Therefore, I will give free rein to my complaint. I'll speak out in the bitterness of my soul. I will say to God, do not condemn me, but tell me the charges you have against me. And here a page is turned. For the first time, Job says, I'm not going to deal with you comforters anymore. I want to go to God directly. 
I want to make my appeal to God. I want to present my case. I want him to justify to me why this stuff is happening. And that is the idea that continues throughout the rest of the book. And each time it comes back, it grows in its intensity and its anger. Well, the third comforter speaks up. His name is Zophar. He begins talking in chapter 11. And basically, it's the same perspective. Don't blame God. You must have some problem in your life that's causing this. Chapter 11, verse 10, he's talking about God, and this is what he says. Confines you in prison and convenes a court. Who can oppose him? Surely he recognizes deceitful men when he sees evil. Does he not take note? Zophar's advice to Job is, get right with God. Admit your evil, evil. And now, by this time, Job is angry. Once again, he angrily proclaims his desire to take his case directly to God in chapter 13. And in chapter 13, verse 5, he demonstrates his frustration with these quote-unquote comforters. And he says this, see if you don't wish to say this to somebody once in a while. If only you would be altogether silent for you, that would be wisdom. Have you ever wanted to say, listen, here's the really wise thing you can do right now. Try not to speak. That's what Job is saying. It'd be best, just go back to silence. That's, that's what's wisdom. And what, what you just saw is the three comforters with their, with their uh, um, uh, condemnation of Job, Job's response. And what I want you to see is this, this continues on for three more cycles. Uh, there's a um, total, total of three cycles. Each time the comforter saying, Job admit it, Job saying, there's nothing for me to admit, and getting angrier and angrier all along the way. That's the rest of the body of the book of Job. But then by the time we get near the end, in chapter 32, a fourth comforter shows up. Let's go there. Chapter 32, a lot of, a, lot of, uh, a man named Elihu emerges. Now, the fact is, he's been there all along. He's listened to all of Job's complaints. He's listened to the condemnation of his comforters. He's listened to all the dialogue. And Elihu engages the problem completely differently. He doesn't get into a dialogue with Job. Rather, he launches into four speeches. And in these speeches, he shows his anger. First of all, his anger at what he considers to be Job's arrogance. How dare you think that you're so righteous that you don't deserve this? And his anger at Job's comforters, how inept they have been in truly being a comfort to Job. Elihu goes to the big picture. He defends God's right to run the universe his way as a sovereign God. And he makes the point to Job, listen, it is very often in suffering that you learn the most important lessons. To turn man from wrongdoing and keep him from pride. To preserve his soul from the pit and his life from perishing by the sword. In other words, he's saying you know, there, there, there is an outcome here that God is working. So learn the lesson so you can be safe in him. And Elihu puts down some, some of these lessons that are important for us to cling to. But also, we find disappointment in Elihu. He also kind of believes you will always get what you deserve. You must be here for a reason. But while he makes that point, 
he warns Job. Do you follow along chapter 38 verse 1? Then the Lord answered Job out of the storm. He said, Who is this that darkens my counsel with words without knowledge? Brace yourself like a man and I will question you. Where were you when I laid the earth's foundation? Tell me if you understand. Who marked off its dimensions? Surely you know. Who stretched a measuring line across it? On what were its footings set? Who laid its cornerstone? While the morning stars sang together, and all the angels shouted for joy. I'm going to continue. Verse 8. Who shut up the sea behind the doors when it burst forth from the womb? When I made the clouds its garment and wrapped it in thick darkness, when I fixed limits for it and set its doors and bars in place, when I said, This far you may come and no farther, here is where your proud waves halt. Have you ever given orders to the morning or shown the dawn its place? He declared all along that he wants to make his case before the Lord. He wants to case, take his troubles directly to the Lord and ask him questions. But when God shows up, only God asks the questions. He asks more than 40 questions of Job. And the questions take Job and us on a tour of his power. It is a barrage of images of God's greatness, his grandeur, his majesty. We see his might, and gradually what unfolds as God asks these questions, question after question, is a picture of complicated, a complicated universe that God has made, sustains, and runs. And it is overwhelming. It is awe-inspiring, and it is meant to be, because all of those questions are designed to make Job realize the huge mistake himself on a level with the Almighty. And the lesson is scary, confronted, and he sees, he learns how silly it is for him to think that he can contend with the Almighty, that somehow uh, he can ask for answers and reasons. He recognizes how small he is in comparison with God. But here's what I want you to see. Job is not crushed by that realization. He's not belittled by that realization. Why? Because in it, he sees that this being who is the reality behind everything that is, this God, he's listening to me. The ultimate of all reality is interested in me. And instead of Job being crushed by God's greatness, he's lifted up. And in chapter 42, verse 3, we hear Job speak, Surely I spoke of things I did not understand. Things too, too wonderful for me to know. Culmination says this. When suffering comes, there is something that's more important than intellectually understanding the reason. And that which is more important is humbly trusting the God who is beyond your comprehension, who is running the universe, and he asks you for faith. It dawns on Job that even without understanding all the reasons, even without putting together all the whys and the connecting points, he can endure his suffering when he knows that that being is paying attention to him in his sovereign power. This us to the epilogue in, verse 40, in chapter 42. When in the final moments of the book, you see it switch back from poetry to prose, and the narrator speaks. And the narrator explains to us that Job's wealth was restored to him. 
Joe's health was restored to him. His family is restored to him. But all these things came back after he stopped demanding them on the basis of his goodness. And so there are some important theological themes here in the book of Job. Theme number one, for Job and he is for you. And he wants nothing more than to pull you away from a very simple walk of faith. The teaching is here that the falsehood of the prosperity doctrine that says God will reward your faith with money. That simplistic point of view is out there still. Thirdly, the weakness of the doctrine of retribution, the idea that says that, that one size fits all, if you're suffering you must be bad. Certainly God does chasten his people so that we learn lessons and conform to his will for us in our lives. But the idea that says that all suffering is a result of sin is swept away by one example. The only person who never sinned suffered greatly. Number four, the reality of ultimate blessing. There is a worldview that the comforters never bring up. You always have to keep in mind that this experience you're going through is the shortest part of your life. And if you don't look at your life through the lens of eternity, you will always misunderstand it. He admitted when he didn't have all the facts. He, he was willing to say, I don't understand this. There's a lot about this that I don't know. But he stood on the bedrock, bedrock that he did know. And what was that? It's expressed in chapter 19, verse 25. I know that my Redeemer lives. And in the end... He will stand on the earth. I don't get all this that's happening. I don't see the throne room of heaven. I don't know why this is all occurring. But I trust that there is a sovereign God who lives as my Redeemer forever. So never believe that life is absurd. Never believe life is meaningless. Never believe that God is unjust or cold-hearted. Always abound in thanksgiving, even when hard times come. Why? Because the one who is beyond your understanding is watching and interested in you. And so we leave the book of Job, I do at least, thinking about Paul's words to the Romans. Chapter 12, verse 21. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good.